Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview philosopher Eric Steinhardt. One might really say, oh, I'm an atheist. I love Aquinas' third way. Because it proves that there's some, you know, necessary ground of being that's completely impersonal. And uh, the third way proves that the God of the Bible does not exist. If you like the show and want it to continue, please write a kind review on iTunes or send the link to a friend. And now, my interview with Eric Steinhardt. Dr. Eric Steinhardt is an associate professor of philosophy at William Patterson University in New Jersey. He works mostly in metaphysics and also on the analytical and logical tools used by philosophers, and has recently taken an interest in philosophy of religion as well. Eric, welcome to the show. Glad to be here, Luke. Eric, in The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins agrees with theists that there must be a first cause, but he thinks it makes no sense to think it would be something as complex as God. Rather, he says the first cause must be something ultimately simple, and science may discover it one day. What do you think of all of that? I think that it's uh, very interesting how Richard Dawkins believes that science is really able to address the questions that religionists once thought they could only address through uh, divine revelation or through studying holy books or something like that. And so it's, of course, Dawkins tells us that evolution can tell us about the origins of life and the nature of life. We don't need a divine creator, God of Genesis or something like that to do that. And that science can answer all sorts of questions about the past of the universe, about its future, about what goes on. And it's all governed by, by law, by natural law. And that law is independent, it's objective, it's transcendental, it's uh, formal, logical, precise, uh, necessary, and impersonal. And if you follow out the laws, uh, the scientific method gives us the ability to understand these laws uh, because we're rational creatures. You know, you don't see God anywhere. Now, cosmologists tell us about the Big Bang and things like that. And so Dawkins says, okay, that's, that's what science tells us. But then, you know, in the God delusion, right, he's reporting various conversations. People say, well, why is there something rather than nothing? And he says, well, okay, there has to be some kind of first cause. Now, I don't think he, he agrees with the theists that it's going to be a first cause like they want from, you know, like, for instance, uh, William Lane Craig wants with his uh, Kalam cosmological argument. It's not uh, first cause like uh, you find in Aquinas uh, first or second arguments for the existence of God. But that there's got to be some sort of self-bootstrapping kind of uh, crane, rather than, to use Dennett's uh, word, rather than a skyhook. In other words, something that starts off, and he suggests it, it could be an evolutionary kind of process. This is where, where Dawkins gets into some interesting cosmology. This says, he turns, for instance, to the work of uh, Lee Smolin, a physicist, a cosmologist, who says... Maybe there's super cosmic evolution, you know, that universes uh, sort of breed other universes or give birth to other universes. And 
in the space of possible universes, we have an evolution of actuality. And that brings eventually our universe into existence through a kind of process that then naturally explains, for instance, the fine-tuning of, of our universe for life and complexity. And so whatever this is, it's interesting, too, you know, to think of, of things John Leslie has said in this context. Of uh, Leslie talks about what he calls axiarchic principles, which are principles that say uh, goodness is ontologically productive. Goodness brings things into being. And this is just abstract. Goodness isn't a god or a deity. It's just sort of a, a an ethical principle uh, written into the, the nature of possibility itself, uh, almost like Plato's form of the good. And so, you know, it's interesting to see Dawkins at some of these points bring in an enormous amount of metaphysics, you know, possible universes, uh, you know, sort of, uh, if you're thinking about laws of, you know, super cosmic evolution, those, you know, those almost sound, those are natural laws, but they're laws operating on an enormous scale. So it's interesting that science, in his view, has the power to, you know, talk about that kind of metaphysics. And, and in that way, I think the new atheists differ from, say, old atheists. Dawkins is, is willing to entertain and enter into metaphysical speculation about you know, the origins of, of the universe, the origins of all universes, the origin of actuality. And uh, that gives, I think, Dawkins and, and uh, in some other cases, the new atheists, an enormous amount of explanatory power that old atheisms didn't have. That's very deep. I think that deserves a lot more exploration within you know, the atheistic community, so to speak. And I think Dawkins' point there is that if there's got to be this first cause for everything, then it makes the most sense for it to follow the pattern of scientific discovery and be something just really simple and profoundly explanatory in very specific scientific ways, rather than saying, well, the first cause must be this enormously complex thing who's a personal being with desires and intentions and who engages in personal relationships and political struggles and has knowledge in a mind and all this kind of thing. Um, to start from that just seems like you're starting, you know, with a skyhook kind of thing rather than a, a buildup from some very simple principle. Is that part of what you find intriguing about Dawkins' line of thought? Yeah, I think, you know, Dawkins, time and time again, from his studies of biological evolution, and I think he's entirely right about this, is to say that the complex emerges from the simple. And it may not even be one of the things that we, we might have to watch out for is that it might not be a simple it that's behind uh, the answer to the question, why is there something rather than nothing? You know, it may just be, like you, you just said, very straightforward and simple principles or natural laws that make it logically required that there be something rather than nothing. But it's nice to see that Dawkins says things like, maybe you find out that there were things that were, uh, he talks about two instances, there could be, you know, superhuman aliens, and we discover that there were these extraterrestrials. And 
Nevertheless, even if they were superhuman with superhuman technologies and powers, they would still fall under the laws of nature. Mm -hmm. He also at one point uh, in The God Delusion, actually a couple points, brings up the possibility that we're living in a computer simulation. And, and Nick Bostrom and other people have, have talked about this kind of idea. And if we were, you know, the simulators might look very much like the gods of traditional theisms. But they would still be entirely natural beings that came into existence through evolutionary processes. They wouldn't be supernatural. And their complexity would be evolved. So I think Dawkins is always saying that the complex comes from the simple and that theists have got it really backwards. On this point, I think he's entirely correct. Now, you brought up Smolin's cosmological theory, and I really find that an interesting example because here is a sort of first cause type of theory that can be placed to compete with God as a first cause theory, and yet Smolin is a scientist, and so he actually develops mathematical models for his theory, and he can make specific predictions about what we should observe because of the mathematics of his model. For example, if his theory of cosmological natural selection is correct, we should observe that when we smash big atoms together, the resulting ratios of particles should be the same as what we think came out of the Big Bang. And uh, if his theory is correct, then inflation must be a single field, single parameter inflation. Uh, if his theory is correct, there should be very little early star formation in our universe. If his theory is correct, the universe should be extremely suitable to black holes. And all of those, sure. in fact, turn out to be true, and they're very specific predictions that result from the mathematics of his theory. Whereas, when you look at the God-did-it theory, there's just nothing that comes out of that. And so, the prospect of a scientific first cause theory is very exciting to me because we could actually test these things and, and compare them, whereas God did it just the way it's usually formatted gives us no information at all. I think that's, that's correct. I think that what you mentioned that's very interesting, Luke, is the mathematical aspect of it. And, you know, in a certain sense, that's really deeper than even saying anything about observability or uh, empirical testability. Because mathematics really should be able to cover anything that's consistently definable. And what really is striking, if one were a theist, like, like say, William Lane Craig, who's so deeply interested in these kinds of cosmological arguments, you know, you might expect someone like that to be able to say, I can give you equations. You know, I can give you axioms. I can give you a mathematical model mm -hmm. of how God does it. You know, maybe this is beyond what our empirical science will ever be able to tell us. Uh, there are limits to, you know, observation and things like that. Nevertheless, you, you would expect the theist to be able to provide some kind of mathematics because math isn't limited by observation, right? I mean, the mathematical equations could describe things that are far beyond observation, things either we can't observe in principle or in practice, and yet theists don't even do that. That's one of the things that is really striking to me, right? because a mathematician can develop a theory of things that, you know, you could develop mathematical theories of other possible universes, of other possible structures, of alternative physics, of, you know, uh, transfinite computers. I mean, math has no limits except for what's consistently definable. And so, 
why not a mathematical theory of divine uh, creation? And I think that to me, that no one has ever even tried that, that's what to me suggests that theistic explanations for the existence of uh, our universe are really bankrupt. Where is the theory? And it does seem additionally strange to me that if the God-did-it hypothesis is supposed to involve a being that is necessary and necessarily holds the properties that it does, then that seems like it would be very amenable to math. Every If all of these properties are necessarily their conditions, that I don't even know what it means to say that he's a person then, but if we go with the kind of medieval perfect being theology that some people prefer, then it seems like you could provide a very clean mathematical concept of a being that necessarily has all the properties that it does. Yeah, I think you touched on a really interesting issue there, Luke. And the issue is, in in fact, I think a very deep conflict that's going on in philosophy of religion today. And it's a deep conflict within, I think, within the Christian tradition, which is really a conflict between what's really a Neoplatonic theology yeah. and... Yeah a biblical theology. You know, the Neoplatonic theology is really, you know, the god of the philosophers or the religion of the philosophers. And it's about a necessary being, a maximally perfect being, a being that transcends space and time. And it's, one might say that being exists or not, but whatever that being is, it ain't the god of the Bible. No. And you know, the God of the Bible is like Zeus, right? I mean, he walks on the vault of the heavens. He talks in the garden with Adam and Eve. You know, he opens the sky and makes a flood. He slaughters the Amalekites. He blows on the Red Sea. and He throws rocks from the sky at a fleeing army. He turns people into salt. Right. He... Um, changes his mind. He's morally persuaded. He apologizes for doing sure. evil. <laughs> Peter von Inwagen, uh, philosopher of religion and, and metaphysics, says at one point, you know, philosophers draw a distinction between concrete and abstract beings, right? And abstract beings are like numbers, you know, they're necessary, they're eternal, they're outside of space and time, they don't causally interact with any physical things. Whereas concrete things are in space and time, and they causally interact with physical things in space and time. And he says, he gives a list. He says, Here are some, here's a list of things that if they exist are concrete. And he says, cabbages and kings, bits of sealing wax, angels, ghosts, and God. And you want to say, wow, Tillich says we can't make God a thing among things. And here you've got Von Inwagen's essentially an evangelical philosopher. And so you've got this guy saying, no, God is just like cabbage. You know, I mean, he's certainly more powerful, but he's, it's the same kind of thing as a bit of sealing wax. You've got to say that God, if it exists at all, is just another thing among things in the natural order. And so people like Sanger and Dawkins are entirely right in saying the existence of that God is totally up to science. If science doesn't show us that that thing exists, it doesn't. You know, because science can tell us about cabbage and about bits of sealing wax and things like that. And I mean, that's the evangelical biblical God, Yahweh, or 
you know, El Elyon, just the Canaanite sky god. And that concrete thing would be governed by the laws of nature. It would be governed by the laws of mathematics. Whereas the Neoplatonic god, right, which, which we just mentioned, yeah, that god is a, is a necessary being who's, who might be very amenable to mathematical treatments. In fact, you could maybe even work out, you know, axiomatic systems about, about goodness and productivity of possibilities and universes and what, and you could do a whole metaphysics, right? But it, it ain't, that ain't the God of the Bible. If we want to talk about developing Neoplatonic theologies, I love that. That's a small, small business enterprise of mine, but it's certainly not Christian theology. Now, I mean, you, you find, you know, you find a tension where, a lot of these Christian philosophers will go back and forth. They want to say, when they're in a bind, they'll suddenly become Neoplatonists. Yeah. But as soon as they can get out of that, right, then they're back to the, to the Bible. When they're talking to atheists, they'll become Neoplatonists so that they can offer really abstract cosmological type arguments. And then when they're talking to believers, they'll talk about Yahweh. That's right. And I think one of the places you find that happening most, the bait and switch, is if you look at discussions of the ontological argument, either in, you know, Plantinga or William Lane Craig. And think about, it, I think Dennett talks about it very nicely. You know, so so God is supposed to be, you know, a maximally perfect being, that than which no greater is possible. You know, Dennett says, I have no problem with that. Sure, why not? You know, that could be anything, or it could be constrained by various kinds of concepts of maximality. I wrote a paper in religious studies where I said that one way to interpret maximally perfect being is to say that it's the universe of set theory. I mean, what's, there's nothing more inclusive. It, in, it includes all possibilities and actualities from a mathematical perspective. So, you know, you could say the maximally perfect being is the best of all possible worlds. If there is such a thing, I mean, surely that contains all moral perfections. It contains every, you know, all positive potentials are realized of all possible beings or, you know, whatever. The strange thing is you'll see theists start with that formula of God is that than which no greater is possible, the maximally perfect being. And then they'll say, see, it, it's got to exist. It's possible. It's, therefore, it's necessary. Therefore, it exists. And oh, by the way, it's the it's the God of the Bible. <laughs> That's an extremely weak point, I think, in the theistic arguments. You know, and, and I think that, for instance, atheists could use the ontological argument to great effect. I think all too often atheists say they want to just dismiss all these theistic arguments. In my mind, it's more interesting as a problem in philosophy of religion, and maybe I should say philosophy of atheism. Uh, I'm very interested in the philosophy of atheism. To say, look, look at those arguments. You talked about the first cause arguments, right? I mean, look at the arguments in Aquinas, the first and second way, or, you know, perhaps more interestingly, the third way. And you know, Aquinas is a sharp guy. Aquinas is, is, is a smart guy. In none of those arguments does he ever say, oh, and this proves God. You know, at the end of every one of those arguments, he says, this is what men call God. Or, you know, this is what they refer to as God. Yeah, you know, he gives himself some wiggle room. And that's interesting because one might really say, 
oh, I'm an atheist. I love Aquinas's third way because it proves that there's some, you know, necessary ground of being that's completely impersonal. And uh, the third way proves that the God of the Bible does not exist. Now, that would be an interesting atheistic argument. Or to take the ontological argument and say, wow, the logic of the ontological argument, maybe we can fight over that. Is it valid? Is it sound? But let's not fight over it. Let's agree. Let's agree that it's the logic is valid and the argument is sound. And so that there does, in fact, exist a maximally perfect being. But it's not God. And we could go back to the Old Testament and look at all the horrible things that God does and say, he ain't maximally perfect. So whatever that thing is, it's not God. That, I think, is an intriguing line of research for atheists to get into, rather than just attacking those arguments and saying, oh, they're bad arguments. You know, why not say, you know, when you look at the argument, whatever you pull out of that hat, it isn't the theistic deity. Steve Mateson has an article called Anselmian Atheism, where he argues, much as you hinted at just now, that if we take Anselm's notion of God seriously, the being than which none greater can be conceived, then that implies a most radical kind of mysticism, because that being is completely beyond anything that we can conceive of, and certainly beyond the biblical Yahweh. And so, really, that's pretty much atheism if that argument succeeds. Um, but I do want to go back to what you're talking about with Van Inwagen and him putting God in the class of concrete objects. I think what he seems to be doing there is just endorsing the Christian notion of God rather than the Platonic one. And so he's saying, yeah, God isn't this abstract, ineffable being. Rather, God is maybe something more like the God presented in the Bible. And if that's the way he wants to argue, that's fine. I suppose har arguments are harder to construct in favor of the existence of that kind of very specific God, but uh, at least he's talking about the Christian God, potentially. Again, it's a real struggle, especially what we've seen in the United States in the last, you know, say 20 or 30 years with the emergence of, of evangelical Christianity, which is, is so, you know, back to the Bible, Yeah. right? I grew up in an, in an evangelical, a very strong evangelical household, and, and, you know, that was my past. And uh, one of the benefits of that was getting an intense immersion into the Bible itself. <laughs> I hope you didn't actually read the thing about the part where he slaughters the Canaanites and all that kind of thing. Reading the Bible can be very devastating to faith. I think that actually probably the thing that really took me out of theism was reading the Bible. You know, just saying, wait a minute, this God is horrible. But, you know, it's been said by many people, one of the best ways to become an atheist is to read the Bible. But back to von Inwagen, I mean, I think that, yeah, he wants, on the one hand, to defend the existence of that God. But the existence of that God really is a scientific question. The biblical God, Yahweh, who has all these involvements in human affairs, causally speaking. That's a scientific question, and I think science clearly shows that there is no such thing. I think it makes me really sad to think that that's what Christianity has sort of become. Or maybe that's what it always was. I don't know. But 
certainly in the great Christian philosophers, you find a lot of, you know, I often think sometimes they don't really like the Bible and they, they think it's maybe an embarrassment. So I don't know, you know, maybe Nietzsche was right that Christianity is Platonism for the people. You scratch a Christian theologian and you get a Neoplatonic theologian. You know, there you just might think of, of Paul Tillich, who's, he's just a Neoplatonist mm -hmm. as far as I can see. I don't understand why he calls himself a Christian. Or maybe he thinks Christianity is Neoplatonism. But that's gone, at least in the United States. That kind of liberal Protestant understanding of Christianity disappeared, I think, essentially with the emergence of evangelicalism, which, you know, I think it's very novel. I think it's, it's a kind of biblicalism uh, in the more extreme versions of fundamentalism and dispensationalism. I think it's something very close to Bible worship. Today, when I think for most American Christians, God is just a kind of American God of war, or God has become the nation. You know, and that's, there was uh, a book by uh, Christian pastor Boyd. I think you're talking about Greg Boyd, Myth of a Christian Nation. Right, so you know it, great, where he, you know, just says that what evangelicalism and Christian fundamentalism had become was is a worship of the nation. And that's idolatry. Well, he picked the Jews to bring out his mission on earth thousands of years ago, and now he's picking America to bring his mission of democracy to the world. And that's pretty terrifying. It is terrifying. And I think it's uh, it obviously has had, has had terrifying consequences. It becomes wholly violent. And I've often thought of a thought experiment if science discovered that there exists a supreme being, you know, an all-pervading logical structure of reality that deserves to be called divine. And there's universal scientific complete agreement. And maybe even it's a divine person in some incredible sense. And that discovery proved the Bible wrong. Then I think that the evangelicals and fundamentalists would say, no, we don't believe the science. They would rather believe in the Bible than believe in God. Well, Eric, you also wrote a paper on resurrection that I must say I found pretty strange and bizarre. But in that paper, you discuss... That's me. <laughs> this is what you mathematicians do when you have too much free time, huh? Is that it? <laughs> no, no, no. I need, I need more free time. Okay. Well, in that paper, you discuss naturalistic accounts of resurrection, such as one developed by John Hick. Could you tell us just briefly what was Hick's theory of resurrection and his motivation for developing it? I think that it's, it's always disappointing to me to hear atheists say, oh, there's no life after death, or materialism just entails that when you die, you're, you're just dead. And I think that on one hand, that's correct, but on the other hand, it's wrong. One of the interesting things you see with somebody like Dawkins starting to talk about possible worlds or thinking about mathematical realism is that simply denying the theistic deity does not imply that you repudiate all metaphysics. Everybody has a metaphysics. And I think materialism is a bad one. I'm a materialist about persons. I don't believe that there are any immaterial, supernatural, Cartesian souls. But I don't think that materialism entails or naturalism entails that there can't be life after death. And what John Hick did is to take some of these issues seriously and say, 
Look, the resurrection of the body is an idea that doesn't require any material soul. It's a materialist idea. And it's one that could be consistent with the idea of natural law. Now, Hick recognizes right away that, you know, resurrection is not, you know, the revival of a corpse or something like that. I mean, that's, that's a, you know, maybe a poetic image or something. But Hick says, look, the, the laws of nature in our universe, uh, there's no resurrection of the body in our universe. What Hick says is that we're going to be resurrected in another universe. So what he says is when you die here, a replica of your body is, is produced in another universe, and that he says this is lawful. Now, he believes in, in an abstract kind of Neoplatonic God and who creates laws that span many universes. And uh, nevertheless, right, he thinks it's all, it's all a matter of law. There's no miracle involved in the resurrection of the body. So he says it's a naturalistic process. So universes are these big units of space and time, but there can be lawful connections between universes. And so when a person dies in this universe, a replica of that person is created in another universe. If you were in that other universe, that process of creation would look like a natural process to you because, in fact, it would be a natural process. Eric, the only touch point that I have to understand what you and Hick were discussing is Hugh Everett's theory of multiple universes. And I'm thinking in particular, you know, maybe there's a case where I am about to be hit by an oncoming bus. And in the relevant quantum events right there, a parallel universe splits off, well, many of them split off, but in many of them, I stay in that spot and I'm hit by the bus and I die, and in some of them, I suddenly move out of the way at the last second, and so I've died in some universes, but I've survived in other universes. I don't think that's what you're talking about, but that's about the only way that I can explain what you're talking about to myself. Right, the quantum immortality kind of, of theories. No, no, that's not, that's not what Hick's view is, nor would it be mine. No, the idea is that there are many universes. One way to think of this might be to think of the old idea of eternal recurrence. The ancient Greeks, and then of course Nietzsche, said things like, look, you know, our universe is, is a structure, and it gets repeated, and everything's going to be repeated, and, and the repetition will be exact. You know, maybe there's a, there was a Big Bang, and then our universe unfolds, and then there's going to be a big crunch, and that'll lead to another Big Bang, and another reproduction of our universe, an exact reproduction. You know, this one way of cashing out the notion of the eternal return. Uh, it's probably false, but this is just an image. So after our universe uh, ceases to exist, another universe exactly like it will come into being, and in that next universe another replica of you is going to exactly come into being. And since everything's exact, right, that other replica is going to lead uh, your same life, right? From birth, you're it's going to have, you know, your mother and father are going to be there, uh, you know, George Bush. Oh, God, not Bush again. Again and again. That's Yeah, eternal return is a bad theory. Oh. <laughs> it, yeah, it's just an image. You're going to be replicated. Hicks says, Something, something like this. This is the direction that I develop it. Is to say, look, 
the laws of nature aren't going to be the same in every cycle, as it were. They get better. Things get improved. So your life will be a little bit better on each cycle, a little bit longer, a little bit richer. Uh, politics will be a little more just. George Bush won't be elected the next time around. Or he'll be a, a better guy. You know, it could go that way, right? <laughs> it's an optimistic theory. All right. How, how does stuff get better? I mean, I, I would understand if maybe, you know, in the next evolution of the universe, the speed of light was a little bit faster. And so the end result would be that uh, civilizations throughout the galaxy are actually able to contact each other or something. But how would things get better in terms of a little bit more, you know, happiness in people's lives or something like that? Good question. Think about it this way. I mean, one argument might be, you know, consider the people who said things like our universe is finely tuned for life, right? And so, you know, and they, and they say, oh, and the best explanation for that is the existence of a designer god who's in the back fiddling with the, the knobs. Well, an alternative explanation is, you know, similar to the one given by Lee Smolin, uh, but I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to endorse or not endorse Smolin's particular ideas, right? Is just to say, look, there's an evolutionary process, right? Whereby, you know, universes have these, there are possible universes, right? Our universe has many possibilities. And one possibility is that there's another universe that's very much like ours, except that our lives are better. So, what makes any possibility actual? Why is our universe actual rather than a universe that's completely devoid of life? And some people say, well, all universes are actual. Okay. And we just happen to be able to be in one where we can actually observe things. So that's why we see the universe we do, an anthropic kind of explanation. But Think about the kind of things that Dawkins has said about, you know, a self-bootstrapping process of, of actuality. He seems to portray, and his suggestion is that you start out, say, with simpler universes, and they must be actualizing more and more complex universes. That's what evolution does. And so why not focus that a little bit, right, and say, well, what qualities are getting maximized or optimized in this kind of evolutionary process. And Hicks suggests that its quality is related to ethical value. And again, that doesn't mean pleasure, and it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, you'll just be smiling more, right? But it's to suggest that life will be able to flourish more intensely. Now, look, I haven't given you an argument for why that, that should be the case. I mean, maybe I've said, you know, that's a better explanation of why our universe is finely tuned for life than the theistic designer explanation. It's an explanation that parallels evolutionary explanations. You know, I can't even think of what it would mean for a universe to be selected for ethical quality. <laughs> it's, a, it's still a pretty oh, bizarre sure. idea for me. So why... Out of all the possible universes that could be actual, is this one actual? You know, Leibniz famously said, because it's the best. He says God selects it. Now, you know, somebody might object to that and say, well, God could have used other principles, right? God could have gone through his possible universes and selected the one that has 
the most stars or something, right? Anyway, Leibniz says it's an ethical principle, right? A principle of value is what God uses. You know, one way to respond to that is to say, fine, it's an ethical principle that decides which possible universes are actual. We just don't need a God, right? I mean, this could just be a law of nature, just like any other natural law. We don't need a God to enforce the law of gravity. And so we don't need a God to enforce, say, uh, ethical laws that are used to select which possible universes get to be actual. Now, that's actually what John Leslie says. And in fact, Leibniz himself applied that very same logic in a paper called On the Radical Origination of Nature, where he says possibilities themselves have a natural tendency to actuality. And the tendency is proportionate to their perfection. And he writes this up, and a couple of his friends look at this, and they say, uh, you better change this because this looks like a radically atheistic theory of creation. Because then we don't need God. We don't need God at all. And literally, he says this. Every possibility has a natural tendency to actuality. And the tendencies are in proportion to the perfections of the possibilities. And it almost looks at one place, you know, in this article, he gives you a deduction, a proof of the existence of God from this. He says, well, you know, so the maximal maximally perfect system of possibilities, is the maximally perfect being, and that's God. And therefore, the natural tendencies of possibilities produce God. And his friends look at this and say, dude, you are so going to get burned at the stake. First, you're saying that the universe can emerge in a natural process, and now, now even God emerges as the result of a natural process? And he modifies this then. He adds a couple of paragraphs. He says, all I'm describing is an ideal process in the divine mind. After there's complaints like this is, yeah, this really is the radical origination of nature. It's, it's radical in the sense that there's no deity behind it. So why not adopt that point of view and just say, look, out of all the possible universes, why is any universe actual? And why does the actual universe have any of the features that it does have? You could either say because there's a wonderful God behind it all who selects this best of all possible universes and makes it actual. Or whatever principle you think God is using is just a law of nature, too. That's a simpler theory. It's a simpler theory. You just remove one large ad hoc hypothesis. And it's a hypothesis that really is irrelevant. And think about what somebody like Dawkins was saying when you talked about, you know, earlier when we started with, a, you know, uh, a simple first cause or a simple first principle. I mean, one may have something like just a self-bootstrapping process here where... There are qualities, I mean, you could even think of if some people don't like the, the value language because they think it's too anthropocentric or something. I mean, you could, you could think of just something like maximizing the amount of information processing going on in the universe. Right. You know, that would in fact lead to lots of kind of ethical maxima. You're going to have more computing going on in the universe. You're going to need more and more computers that are better and better harmonized with one another. And that's us. There you go.
<laughs> now, I think a lot of people are going to protest that we wouldn't call that resurrection because there's no continuance of consciousness between the two. I'm not going to be able to remember myself from the previous universe. Well, that's not resurrection. I mean, resurrection requires that you die. Resurrection theories don't involve any continuity of consciousness. I mean, when you, when you die, you're dead and your consciousness stops, right? Resurrection theories aren't reincarnation theories where there's some Cartesian soul that keeps on thinking after you're dead and then gets stuck in another body. Right? That's reincarnation. Eric, what kinds of problems in philosophy of religion do you think are fruitless or irrelevant? And which problems in philosophy of religion do you think are really interesting? A lot of what I think is sort of fruitless is, is starting in, in philosophy of religion today, I think is the constant beating a lot of dead horses, particularly the old theistic arguments, you know, are they good? Are they bad? Uh, God, the gallons of ink spilled there. What I'd like to see more of, I gave you some examples of using old theistic arguments, you know, to new ends that are essentially atheistic purposes. And I'm seeing, you know, atheists start to see that they can adapt religious language. You know, so there are people on the internet talking about, you know, the atheist gospel, you know, atheistic evangelism. I think that there's real serious concept of atheistic piety and atheistic reverence, which is, it's not theistic, doesn't involve any God. And I, I'd like to see there be, I'd like to see there be a philosophy of atheism, one that really works on the metaphysics of it, the ethics of it and really tries to construct an affirmative and positive alternative to theism. So that's what I think would be the most interesting system of problems to work out. That's certainly one of my interests as well. Eric, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. All right. Well, uh, Luke, thanks for having me. It's been great. In the next episode, I'll be interviewing John Doris about whether or not moral character really exists. So stay tuned for more Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. <laughs>